Good morning. So uh, this is super exciting already. We are excited, Tucker, for what you just did. It just so happens that God has arranged this for us to actually have a conversation uh, about what Tucker just did. Eventually, we will get into that um, because we are in Acts chapter 15, uh, and that kind of leads us into having this discussion somewhat. And the way God works, uh, we've already had this discussion also in our Sunday school class uh, with Emily teaching. And uh, so I just think it's kind of cool. I just have been felt like just soaking it all in how God has just kind of orchestrated this day, uh, at least for me. Uh, hopefully you'll feel that away a little bit too. Um, so we are in the process of having a, uh, a series this year. It's called Discover. Um, and we're just on like a journey. We've been kind of painting it. Well, we actually did paint a, a portrait back here to kind of help us along with this uh, theme, and that is this uh, path that God has us on. And it's not a, a super smooth path, although this one looks pretty smooth. Uh, it can have a lot of hills and bumps and rocks and, you know, just a lot of hurdles for us along the way. But God has got us on a path, and it's leading somewhere. And we know that. That's why we are trusting by faith at the end of this path there is a rainbow of uh, gold and streets of gold and things like that. That's what we believe. That's what the Word of God teaches us. And so we are, we are just discovering things as we go along. And right now we're in a series where we're just on uh, a road trip with Paul. And we're walking through uh, on this path. We're walking through just uh, Paul's journey. And what are the things that God has in store for us to learn there. So uh, we just got through with Paul's first uh, missionary journey. There's three of them. Um, and uh, if you missed any of those, that's what's really cool about today. We have all of those recorded online. And so you can go to our YouTube channel and catch up with one that maybe you've missed if you want to. Uh, but that's kind of where we are. And Paul has had quite a, quite a crazy um, journey just up to where we are right now. And in fact, the last that we left off, he was beaten uh, with, I mean, not beaten, but uh, stoned and left for dead. Uh, and he just picks himself up by the grace of God and just continues to move on through establishing churches and teaching and bringing people to Jesus everywhere he goes. So in, uh, we're going to look today in Acts chapter 15, and we're going to look all the way down to verse 21. I'm going to go ahead and read that, and then we will uh, discuss this. But some men came down from Judea, And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all of the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after they had had been much debate... Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as they did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are we putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has... Related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree, agree, just as it is written After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, and I 
will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by his name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has, has had in every city those who proclaim to him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So, what we have today is just huge debate that has come up. This, this major uh, conversation around uh, circumcision. And debates and uh, arguments, at least in kind of a, a churchy way, they're no fun, you know, to hash things out. But often they are necessary to kind of get to, um, to the bottom of things and figure out what it is God really wants. And that's what they are all after here in this debate, is they're trying to figure out, okay, what does God want done about this subject, about circumcision? And I think you probably have clued in on me reading that, but what has happened is that they have encountered this situation where the Gentiles are starting to uh, come into the church, and they are uncircumcised people, and the Jews are trying to figure out uh, should they come in uncircumcised or should they be circumcised in order to come into the church? And so there was this big debate because a lot of people were like, yes, they absolutely need to be circumcised according to the law of Moses. And some were like, I don't know. And so Paul and Barnabas were sent to Jerusalem to figure this out. How were they going to figure it out in Jerusalem? Well, the disciples were there. And so they were going to have this big conference with the disciples, you know, this big uh, convention with the disciples, and they were going to sit around, they were just going to talk this out and and hash it out and try to figure out what it is that they were to do. Now, a lot of the first Christians were Jews because the Word of God went to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles second. That's what the Word of God tells us. That's what we also know is that Paul, where does he go? What do we already establish? Where does he go when he goes into a new town? He goes to the synagogue first, talks to them, but then he ends up sharing it with the Gentiles too because that's what God has established. And so because the first Christians were Jewish background, they carried into the church all of their Jewish background. And so they have this, they have always been people who have obeyed the Old Testament law that has been established for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And one of the main uh, parts of that law was that every person that wants to be a part of God's covenant that God made with Abraham needed to be circumcised on the eighth day or at some point in their life. I want us to go through that just so we can establish this, this, this covenant that God had and how he had established this covenant with with, it started with Abraham, but then it was passed on to Moses and on into uh, the time of Jesus. So I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 17, and we're going to read this particular passage here about this covenant that God has established with his people. Genesis chapter 17, verse 1 through 14, it says, When Abram was 99 years old, And the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, for your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into a nation, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between you and me and your offspring after you throughout their generation and for everlasting covenant to to be God to you and to your offspring after you. 
And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all of the land of Canaan, for I am an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my commandments, you shall keep my covenant, sorry, you and your offspring after you throughout generation. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between you and me and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between you, between me and you. So God is making a covenant with Abraham, but that covenant was going to be an everlasting covenant, meaning that it wasn't going to just stop with Abraham and his life. It was going to be extended throughout generations and generations and generations. Now, remember how old Abraham is at this time. He is like in his 90s, right? He is an old man. He doesn't have any children. And God is showing up, establishing his covenant that your offspring is going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Now, I don't know about you, but would that not be a little bit hard to just soak in that he is going to have this happen to him at 90-some years old? This is not at the time of uh, that they were living to be, you know, 900 years old and stuff. This was, this was a time that Abraham would have not had much of a window of opportunity to have children. Nobody was having children in their 90s. And yet God is making this covenant with him. And he says, this is how we're going to seal this covenant. You're going to be circumcised, and everybody in your family that is male is going to be circumcised. And everybody that comes into your house that wants to be a part of this covenant is going to be circumcised. See what it says here. It says, you shall be circumcised in the the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of a covenant between you and me. And he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whom born, born in your house or brought bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Now, the, the main thing I want you to zero in is this very next verse. I, I, this thing ought to be highlighted in your, your Bibles and memorized because this is so, so important. Listen to what he says. This is God speaking. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So how important is God establishing circumcision as a a way of sealing this covenant that God is making with humanity? Absolutely essential. I mean, nobody would argue, the Jews would have never argued with you if circumcision was a, 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 a something that you can do or not do. It doesn't really matter. They would not argue this. And see, this is where our, why we have to really understand what's going on here because of Acts chapter 15. The Jews are insistent that if you want to be a part of God's covenant and come into his, his church and be a part of his family, absolutely you have to be circumcised. Where did they get that from? All the way back to this scripture right here. If you are not circumcised, if every male is not circumcised, then that male is cut off from his covenant. He doesn't have a part of it. It is absolutely essential. So we need to understand that. That's what they taught. That's the way it always was for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So most of the time, Circumcision took place on the eighth day. The boy was eight days old. He was circumcised. But not always. Abraham's not eight days old. He's 99-some years old, and he's, he's being circumcised. And all of his uh, uh, sons, well, not his sons, but the sons of his workers and his workers, and all of them would have been circumcised. And that's just something that they would have just instantly passed down. Now, in verse 2, back into Acts chapter 15, it says, And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, talking about the ones who were insisting on that they were circumcised before they come into the Lord's church, 
Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Now, just keep in mind that this wasn't like just, you know, hop in your car and drive down to, you know, um, over to Tyro or maybe up to Kansas City or something and have a conversation with a bunch of church leaders. This was a huge deal for for Paul and Barnabas to travel to Jerusalem. I mean, it was ridiculous long travel, and they were on foot probably. And so for them to do this was a a huge thing. But that also points out how important this conversation instantly became for the church. What do we do? You see, circumcision all the way up to this time was, it was like the secret password. You know, if you knock on the door and they say, what's the password? You better have it, right? That was the way it was. It was like the ID card to prove that you are uh, in. God in his word here, is this book is full of covenants. That's what we were getting into, Emily was getting in, into with us in Sunday school. But this book is full of covenants that, that people had. Most of the, the, the important covenants, anyway, are the covenants that God made with man. But there are also man making a covenant with man. And, and when they made a covenant, you know what a covenant is. It's like, it's like an agreement or a promise between two individuals. And, mo- and the ones that we're going to talk about, this covenant that God made with Abraham, it was a, an, a, an agreement that God was making with Abraham. But it wasn't just with Abraham, it was with every generation after Abraham that was part of that. And so <laughs> God made these covenants. Most all the time, covenants were sealed with something visual. You know, sometimes a man would make a covenant with a man about some livestock deal that they were doing, and they would seal that covenant by stacking a bunch of rocks up or something, or they would take a shoe and throw it, or I don't know. There was all kinds of odd things that they would do. But it was just a visual reminder of the promises that we are making this day. God did the same thing. You know, there are five significant covenants. There's more than this that God makes with people, but five very significant covenants. And one of them is the covenant that he made with Noah. And God, you know, pretty much wiped out everybody but Noah and his wife and three sons and their wives. So eight people in all. He made a covenant with them. And how did he seal that? He put a rainbow in the sky, is what it says. There is Abraham's covenant, which we just looked at. And how he sealed it? He sealed it with circumcision. There is uh, uh, date, well, there's uh, Moses' covenant. And I, I don't know, I think the section that talks about Moses sealing the covenant, it has two things. It has Moses sprinkling blood on the people. Aren't you glad we aren't doing that today? Um, and also the fact that God gave him the Ten Commandments on two tablets and he brought it down. Both of those are very physical uh, reminders of the covenant that he had with Moses. But then there's the Venic covenant, and then there's the covenant that, he, that we have in Jesus Christ, which we just kind of witnessed here, and we'll get to in a minute, that covenant and how it's being sealed. So we have these very significant covenants. The covenants, these five covenants are just so intertwined with each other. Why? Because they all are for the same purpose, and that is that is God working out his plan in the midst of humanity to sanctify and to save uh, humanity. From the moment that man brought sin into the world, Adam and Eve sinned, was the moment that God's uh, plan began to come into place. And along the way, God was making his covenants. This is my promise to you. I will uh, do this. I will carry this out. I will keep this. And this is your part in this. This is what you are agreeing to do if you want to have a covenant with me. Covenants are binding. Even if the other party does not show themselves faithful, fortunately for us, when we didn't show ourselves faithful, God did not give up the promise that he had with Abraham. He continued to carry it on. So God established his covenant with Abraham. And it was Abraham's responsibility to carry it on. God had this conversation. You... You and I are having this covenant. If you want to do this covenant, then we're going to seal it with circumcision. And not just circumcision with you, but with every male. And it was Abraham's responsibility to go and to teach and to tell his people this. And he did obviously a good job because thousands, a couple thousand years later, 
they're still holding true. You better be circumcised or you're not part of God. So that's where we are. How important is God's covenant in this way? Well, I thought we would just journey to Exodus 4 just so that you can kind of get an understanding how important this is. Because I think it's important for us to comprehend why this is such a debate with, with God's people. Because for us, I'm sure it's like a no-brainer. But to them, it was not that easy. In, in Exodus chapter 4, we have this crazy thing is going on. First of all, we have God calling Moses. And Moses' life is just like a, a really... It is a story for the movie theaters, for sure, right? And obviously it's been there. But you have this, this child who is born, and Pharaoh, who was seeing that the population of, of the uh, Jewish population is getting way too big and out of hand, and so he begins to just annihilate these children. And Moses would have been one on the list, but Moses' mother secretly hides him away. And then she eventually puts him in this little basket boat of reeds and floats him off into the Nile. And you know the story, but Pharaoh's daughter finds this child, raises him as her own. He eventually becomes, you know, like 40 years old, and he has this confrontation out behind, you know, the, the alleyway, ends up killing one of the, the Hebrew people, and then he's off running for his life. For 40 years, he ends up with the Midianites, marries a Midianite, and, and he is just um, uh, kind of a nomad out there, you know, just, and so all this happens, and then God shows up in his life. And so Moses isn't a young guy either, just like Abraham, and God tells Moses, Moses, you're going to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses is like, yeah, probably not me. You know, this whole conversation that God, I'm not the guy for you. I, I don't have the words to say. I, there's no way I can be convinc- convincing enough um, to have this conversation. They wouldn't believe me. I don't have, who, I'm just one guy. And so God goes through this whole thing here in Exodus 4, just explaining to him, you have all that you need. And he, so he could build his confidence, he tells him to take the staff and throw it down on the ground. It turns into a serpent, right? And that just blows Moses away. And then he tells him to pick it up by the tail. He grabs it by the tail, and it's a staff again. And God is just showing him how he will be with him all the way through. He will have the power that he needs to power. He says, well, who am I supposed to tell him who, who sent me? You just tell him that I am sent you. And, and so this whole conversation is going on. It's being established. God is winning Moses over to the idea of going and being his representative to Pharaoh, right? And then in verse 24, it, this wackiest thing happens. He just spends all this time convincing Moses to go. And he says, At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. That's kind of wacky just in and of itself because why would God spend all this time calling Moses to do it? Moses is on his way to do it, and God says just about ready to zap him and kill him right in his tracks. But look what happens right after that. His wife, Zephorah, took a flint and cut off the son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet. By the way, Moses' feet, I don't know. I kind of think that that's the word there, and you can look down in your own... uh, little thing, but it says his feet. That's the only thing we know. So somebody has to establish who is it talking about, his feet or his son's feet. And I'm pretty certain from my perspective that it should have been his son's feet. Okay, but it doesn't really matter. We won't get into all that. But the Zephyr took the flint, cut off the son's foreskin and touched his feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone, meaning God let Moses alone, and didn't kill him. And it was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. Now, is that not just like the wackiest thing? But what I have learned from that is, is this. God called him to be a leader, to go 
to Pharaoh to let my people go. God was going to go with him and might and power and do everything that he could not do on his own. And as he's going, God stops him right in his tracks and was going to kill him. And instantly his wife knew exactly what she needed to do in order to change God's mind. And what was it? Circumcise their son that has never been circumcised. Why wasn't he circumcised? Well, the Midianites weren't actually directly connected with the Jews. They had their own probably ways they did that. And she probably thought, that is gross. There's no way we're doing that to my son. For whatever reason, I don't know exactly how this played out, but she knew exactly what she needed to do. And this was one thing that God knew was lacking for him to be one of his leaders in this, was that he needed to be obedient in this. How important is this to God? God established in Genesis chapter 17, if you want to have any part in me, if you want this covenant to have any effect on you, then you are going to be circumcised, your kids are going to be circumcised, your servants that come in are going to be circumcised. I don't care if they're 90, 60, 40, or 8 days old, they're going to be circumcised. And if they aren't, they're cut off. And I'm pretty certain that Moses and his son and his wife were going to be cut off if they weren't going to submit to this. That's how important it is. And so in Acts chapter 15, we have this big debate, right? And the very first thing it says, it says in verse 1, some men came down from Judea and was teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, because let me tell you, Moses established a custom for circumcision after this episode, you cannot be saved. And so they had to have this debate. It's the first time that it really even came up. It hadn't come up in the church yet because they didn't have people yet that weren't circumcised. So it wasn't even a conversation, you see. But now it is a conversation, and now they've got to figure out what to do with it. And if it's not being, if it's done away with, why is it done away with? See, so they would have had to have that conversation, right? What changed? We've been doing this for 2,000 years. It was essential. And now you're saying it's not essential? Now, it took them a while to iron this out. They had this big debate in Jerusalem, this big gathering. And pretty much we kind of already have established by the end of just this first 22 verses where they were heading towards, right? Right? Here's the conversation. So they bring it to uh, the gathering. And the first people to speak up, what, are the Pharisees. You see that in our passage? The Pharisees speak up and says, absolutely, they need to be circumcised. But then the next person that spoke up was Peter, wasn't it? And Peter's like, whoa, you guys all know that God has called me to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And I took the gospel to the Gentiles, in fact, Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10. You can read all about it, him doing that. And all I know is that God gave, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they were able to do everything that we were able to do. And you could tell God was with them, and so we baptized them into Jesus right then. You can read that. In fact, we might, if we get time, even read that passage of Scripture. And so Peter was the next one to speak up, and he was just basically saying, I don't think that they need to be circumcised because God is, seems like he is accepting them. Then, what was it? I think it was Paul and Barnabas start talking about all that they encountered and how God did amazing things with the Gentiles and accepted them. And then James stands up, and he is the one who kind of concludes this conversation, and he's just like, yeah, I think this is what we ought to do. There's no reason for circumcision. Uh, It's not necessary. But can you imagine what a huge thing that is for people that have been taught this and pounded into them that this is absolutely, this isn't like, this isn't debatable. Why is it even debatable now? It was never debatable for 2,000 years, and you had to do it. What changed? 
Let me try to start with what we know before this meeting. Okay, this meeting is in Acts chapter 15. What do we know before this meeting? Well, here's some things we know. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus dies. He is buried. He is resurrected. He has shown himself to multiple people, a gathering of a, a group of people over 500 and his disciples several times and people along the road to Emmaus and to women, you know, along here and there. And he's shown himself all over the place as a resurrected, no longer dead Lord. At one point, he gathers his disciples together on a mountain just before he ascends into heaven. And this is what he said to them. In verse 16 of chapter 28, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. And Jesus came and he said to them, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I command you. And behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. In Mark chapter 16, his version of the Great Commission, right, he simply says this, Afterwards he appeared to the eleven themselves, and they were reclining at the table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the The whole creation, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So Mark version on that kind of indicates that if they are if they are uh, baptized into Jesus, they will be saved. And so what is it that they do then in Acts chapter two? Because Acts chapter 1 is just Jesus ascending into heaven. They get a new disciple to replace Judas, right? And in chapter 2, they begin to do what God has told them to do. What is that? What did he tell them to do? Therefore, go and make disciples, right? Go and tell, share the good news. And so that's what they do here in Acts chapter 2 is they share the good news. And they have this sermon, and again, like we've talked about so many times, that this isn't the entire sermon, or this would be the littlest sermon in the world, right? But he preaches, and we know what he, the whole topic is about because we get the cliff notes of the main things, and that is that it's Jesus. It's all about Jesus, all about his, what, what they did to Jesus, but what Jesus did for them. He was, they, they killed him, but he was buried, but he came back to life for them. And when they begin to let this sink in, these people that have actually were the ones who were saying, crucify him, crucify him, this is what it tells us. So they get to this conclusion or Peter does, he gets this conclusion of telling these people. And by the way, there were thousands of people. And there were many different languages. So how is it that he is just able to relate this to every one of them? Because God in his, just like he was with Moses, and he was when, took Moses and he would take a staff and turn it into this, or he'd turn you know, the water into blood, or whatever he needed to do to understand that this is God. God was doing that here at this time. And everybody was hearing in their own language what Peter was saying. And so Peter was preaching. They were all understanding. And it says in verse 37, Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart. And you know what that means, to be cut to the heart, right? It's It's like the biggest dose of regret you've ever had. Like, what have I done? And you just want to shrink. You just want to die. You feel like you deserve to die. And all of a sudden, they were understanding what they had participated in. And so the very next things come out of the mouth of somebody that is like that is what? What do we do now? Right? And that's what they say. They were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And what does Peter say, and where did he get it from? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, or into Jesus. In the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. Now, where did he get that from? Isn't that what Jesus told him to do? 
Therefore, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I command you. And we know that we just have a synopsis of that too, but what we know from that is the, the cliff notes, the most important thing is that they were supposed to baptize people into Jesus. And we know that that's what Peter, the very first thing when they said, what are we to do? They were told to be repent and be baptized. And they'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he says, and look at this. this. For this promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord your God calls to himself. Because this is a covenant, an everlasting covenant, just like it was with Abraham. It is passed down from generation to generation to generation. And this is what was going on. This is what they would have already known before the meeting about circumcision, right? And we know that if we went on through Acts... And I'm not going to because of the time constraint here, but, but I'd be glad to share all of this with you later in detail. But what we know is that there was 3,000 people that were baptized into Jesus right then. Right then. They weren't like, well, let me get my calendar. Let me get, let me get my you know, uh, uh, thing pulled up and see if I can schedule this in sometime next week or next month. It was just like instantly. Hey, if this is what it takes... Sign me up. I want to be the next in line. And 3,000 people were baptized that day. And what we know is that in the next chapter 4, when they were more believers coming, we know that they were added to their number, you know, up to 5,000. So a couple thousand more were added to that number. They did not change their uh, uh, story or their, what, what was required of them. Brothers, what we do? Well, they told them the same thing. Repent and be baptized. And if you go through Acts, every time somebody wants to know what they need to do to be in, in Jesus, baptism is always a part of that every time. Every time. The jailer, what is he told? He, he wants to kill himself because his prisoners just escaped, but they stopped him from killing himself. They told him about Jesus, and what is it that they did? They baptized him into Jesus that night. Cornelius' family, the Gentile family, what is it that they did? When they showed that they had faith, they baptized him. The Ethiopian eunuch, Philip, was you know, going along, and he gets on a ride with this guy, this, this Ethiopian eunuch in a chariot, and he's shocking to him about Jesus from the book of Isaiah. And as he's sharing this, out of the Ethiopian eunuch's mouth, it says, well, look, there's water. Why should I delay? And they went down in the water, and he was baptized right then. Well, why would he have just dreamed that up out of the blue if that wasn't part of the conversation about how to do it? And on and on and on, we see this. In fact, even Paul, when he saw the bright light, you know, and Jesus, he went to Ananias. Ananias took these scales off his eyes. He was able to see, and right after it says, arise and be baptized. When Paul retells that story in, I think, chapter 22, he says the only thing he adds to it is that uh, rise, be baptized, washing away your sins, is what Paul says. So we, we just have this understanding. This is what they would have already had established. This is what they were already doing before the meeting even took place, is that if somebody, needs, if somebody desires to be in Christ in the church, have a saving relationship with God, what is it that they needed to do? They would have taught them what Jesus taught them, and that is to be baptized into Jesus. But now, what do we do with circumcision? That was really confusing because this is the first time this has come up here in Acts chapter 15. Emily had us go to Colossians chapter 2, which was awesome because this is probably the, the most helpful verse that we can go to in Colossians chapter 2 about this and helps us understand how they got this all ironed out, this understanding of what do we do with circumcision. And I want you to know that when was Colossians written? about 10, 11 years after this meeting. So they're having this meeting around 50 A.D., 49, or something like that, right after his first missionary journey coming into it. And then about 60 A.D. or something like that is when Colossians was written. 
So 10 years after, this is kind of how we, it's like, this is what we know how they got this all sorted out. And this is what it tells us in Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And all, all he's establishing there is Jesus is the only one that saves. The whole fullness of deity dwells in him. And you have been filled in him who is the head of the ruler of authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, right? But this is, I want you to see what this says. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Super, super, super important. I can't emphasize this enough. What is Paul establishing there? He's, he's talking to people that would have understood circumcision way better than we could understand it. But I think we got a grasp on it today. And he's saying that in Jesus... You were circumcised, but not with a circumcision done by hand. Emily pointed out to us, and I, I already, I think it was in chapter 30, was it, in Deuteronomy or 30? But there in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, if you want to write that down in your notes and go back and look at that, but, but that God tells these people that they need to be circumcised from the heart, right? But then he comes along and does this, that circumcision of the heart. And Emily was asking us, how come? Well, because it, he was doing something that they could not do themselves. And then she asks us, her class, she says, so what is that circumcision of the heart? This is why we went to Colossians chapter 2. She took us to Colossians chapter 2. Because this is the circumcision that is done without hands, right? This is the circumcision of the heart. And what is it that that circumcision is? What did he say? He says it is a circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. So, According to Paul, one of the things that we just saw this morning is a young man that decided that he wanted to be circumcised of his heart. And how important is that? Well, hopefully by the end of this sermon, and we're getting real close to it, but you will see that this baptism is just as essential as circumcision was to the Jewish people. It's essential. He goes on, he says here, he says, and this is so important. In which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You see, we have to somehow connect ourselves with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection because we know that that's, he, what he did on the cross and what he did at the tomb was for our benefit. And how do I connect myself with that? Paul is talking about doing this circumcision without hands. This baptism is a way that it connects us. It says, uh, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God and raised him from the dead. And you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him through forgiveness, uh, give, forgiving us all our trespasses by counseling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This is set aside, nailing it to the cross. There's another passage of Scripture that is so much like this. I think we'll just go ahead and jump to it. And that is Romans Chapter 6. And Paul is talking to them here in, in Rome about grace and about how God saves us. And we can't save ourselves. And it's, it's a gift that we could not earn if, even if we tried. And he's talking about grace. 
And he knows what's going to pop into anybody's head that thinks that they're saved by grace and grace alone. Well, then why do I even worry about my sin? I'll just sin all I want because grace will just keep abounding. It'll just keep increasing in my life, and it'll just keep washing away my sins, right? And so Paul deals with that by this. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? And his answer to that was, by no means. Don't you remember... How can he who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Don't you remember that? And see, Tucker's going to remember it, right? He's going to remember that this is the point in time that he decided he's going to surrender his life to Jesus and that he is going to accept this covenant relationship with Jesus. And just like God made a covenant with Abraham and God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to multiply your, your offspring and you're going to have offspring as numerous. And he's talking to an old man, right? But God kept his word and he did exactly that. He makes a new covenant with us. And we, we looked at this. Emily had us take the, go to this as well. But in Hebrews, I don't remember what Hebrews was it, 8. Um, but it talks about this covenant that God is a new covenant that he is making with his people. And we know that that is through Jesus, right? And so God has offered this covenant with all of us and says, here's, here's what I will do for you. I will save you from all of your sins and make you right before God. And here's how we're going to seal this thing. We're going to seal it with baptism. And that's what he's talking about here. He says, Do you not know all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized in his death? And we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. For if we have been united with him in his death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in his resurrection like his. And that is God's covenant. And so we are saved by grace And he does take away all of our sins. But we don't sin anymore. Why? Because we don't belong to ourselves anymore. We belong to him. And our part of our covenant is to be obedient and walk before him in holiness and blamelessness. That doesn't mean we're perfect, but it means when we screw up, we say, God, forgive me for that. Or, Or, God, I should not have done that. Thank you for your forgiveness. And we continue to walk in this. And then First John talks about it. We walk in the light as he is in the light, and he continues to forgive us our sins. And so we have this being established. They already knew that if somebody wanted to be in Jesus, they needed to baptize them. But they had to figure out what to do with this circumcision. They made a decision that circumcision isn't necessary any longer. It's not, it was essential up to Jesus, but no longer is it essential. What replaced it? According to Colossians, what did we just find? It's the circumcision of the heart. So therefore, it is a circumcision that is, that is done by Jesus when we were baptized into Christ. Now, there's something else I think that it deserves to have a little bit of explanation. I tell you what, before we go there, I just want to go to 1 Peter chapter 3 real quick. Because this whole thing was about Moses, Right? According to the law of Moses. And at first Peter, this is Peter was one of the first to speak up and said, you know, he, he's the one that was called to go to the Gentiles and preach to the Gentiles. And Peter in his book, he deals with this. He's, in verse 18, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that we might might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So you understand that. For Christ also suffered once for sins. It was, he doesn't have to keep coming back, hanging on the cross, and keep going over and over with this sacrifice. Unlike the sacrifices of the Old Testament where they had a sacrifice, and another year they had a sacrifice, another year they had a sacrifice, and it just continued to continue. Jesus is a one-sacrifice deal. Takes care of all sins of the world because he was a perfect lamb, spotless and blameless, as it tells us in Hebrews. That's what he's talking about. The righteous, meaning Jesus, for the unrighteous, meaning us, that we might bring us to God, reconcile us to God. 
being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. And then he goes on, it says, in which he went to proclaim to the spirits in prison. Don't know that I understand completely all that, but the three days that Jesus was dead, he was doing something. He was preaching somewhere to some people. And here's what it says in verse 20. It says, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which the few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. I think the NIV says that eight persons were saved through water. Right? And you can count them up. Noah and his wife, three sons, their three wives, eight people. They were saved through water. I can remember reading that, and I was thinking when I first became a Christian, saved through water, I thought they were saved through the boat. But then I started realizing that, no, they were saved through water because everybody else perished through water, didn't they? Everybody else perished through water, but they were saved through the water. And look what it says in verse 21. It says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal of God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, it is Jesus' resurrection that saves us, but what is the avenue? What is the boat that ends up doing that? It is baptism. You know, Galatians chapter 3 says that uh, uh, all of you who were baptized into Christ were clothed with Christ. Therefore, there is no distinction now from Jew to Gentile, from slave to free. From, we all are one in Christ now because of this. So I want to take you to one more place. I know, I'm sorry. Um, Romans 4, real quick. I, I, th- I think this is so important. He has a conversation here about Abraham and circumcision. I'm just going to pick up in verse 9. He says this. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Talking about salvation in Jesus, justification by our faith in Jesus. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. So Abraham had faith and he was accredited righteousness. All of his sins were forgiven. Hebrews tells us this. And he, and he goes on, he says, then how then was it accounted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Pretty important to establish here. Is, if, I, if you were a Jew and I were to ask you, is circumcision essential? You would all say what? Amen. Yes. Absolutely. But then if I asked you, so are you saved before that essential circumcision or after that? Or, you know, at that moment of your circumcision? Then you'd all look at me like you're all looking at me right now. I don't know. But that's what he's dealing with here. And what Paul's saying is that it was before. He received the signs of the circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that the righteousness would be counted to him as well, and to make him the father of, of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father, father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now, I'm not trying to confuse everything, but just listen to me for just a second. Abraham had faith, and because he had faith, it was credited him as righteousness. But his faith isn't an empty faith. Just as James says, our faith has to have actions. And instantly, Abraham had faith in God. At a 90-some-year-old man, he believed that God would do what God said, and that is that he would give him an offspring that is as numerous as the stars in the sky. And Abraham says, I mean, God says, Abraham, this said we're going to seal it, it was circumcision. Do you think Abraham said, whoa, 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 I didn't know that was part of it. Let me think about it on a couple days. I'll get back with you. No. 
Instantly, instantly, his faith had him doing this. Absolutely. Absolutely. But if he would have said no to circumcision, would he have had saving faith? Absolutely not. Because circumcision was essential for that covenant to be sealed. Are you following me, church? Why does Paul have this conversation? Because he's trying to help us. Baptism is an essential church. Absolutely it is. Because Jesus established it. And the person who establishes the covenant gets to establish how it's going to be sealed. It wasn't Abraham's idea to be circumcised. It was God's idea because it was God's covenant with Abraham, and he decided how to be sealed. Every time, God gets to decide it. Jesus decided how he wanted it to be sealed. That's why he told his disciples, this is what go therefore and make disciples, baptize them in the, the Spirit, or in him, the Holy Spirit, God. I'm trying to talk too fast. But. And this is what they did every single time. And this is what we do. This is what we teach. Nowhere does it say, brothers, what do we do? Well, you need to repent and say this prayer after me. It's not there. For us to try to seal that covenant with a prayer is not there. What is there, there's nothing wrong with saying a prayer. Say the prayer all you want. But for you to think that you can replace that circumcision of the flesh with the circumcision of the heart by saying a prayer is not accurate with what Jesus has left us to do. He has told us, if you want to know what to do, then you repent of your sins and you are baptized into Jesus Christ and seal that thing up. They did it instantly. It wasn't like putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. They just did it. The reason was is because They believed and had faith, and the very thing that led their faith to the next step was baptism. It just led right into it automatically. And the reason that's so important for me to express to you is because no way ever will you convince me, nor will I ever say from this pulpit, that I think there's something magical about that water back there. Nothing magical. But there is something glorious that happens when a person submits his life to Jesus because he believes what Jesus, the covenant that Jesus has made with him, and he is baptized into Jesus, then God seals that and he is united with him in that spot. In that spot. It is just like we were talking, I was talking to Tucker just back there a moment before Sunday school, and I said, hey, when two people will come to be united in marriage, tell me I don't know that we got into this deep, but, but tell me where that uniting takes place. Is it a particular word you say? Is it a particular word the preacher says? Is it when you exchange ring and as soon as the rings come on, then you will not be able to figure that out. All you know is that the Bible says when two people come to be united, God welds them together. So much so that the Bible says, Jesus says, what, man, or what God has joined together, let man not what? Would not separate or put to sunder or thunder. What is that word? I don't know. Put this, yeah. And so the, the thing is, is that God did something in the midst of that ceremony, did he not? And it's because they wanted it. And that's why First Peter is so important because he says this baptism symbolizes, or this baptism, oh my goodness, what did it say? <laughs> Baptism now corresponds to this, now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. In other words, when somebody comes and appeals to God, God, I want to be in this covenant relationship, then God puts you in this covenant relationship. He welds you to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And now you are no longer just you. You are clothed with Christ. But we should hold to baptism as strong as they held to circumcision. Because that is the place that we have sealed that covenant, that relationship with Jesus. It is at that moment that we are clothed with Christ. Let me pray. Father God, thank you so much for giving us a visual 
illustration to go along with the Word of God today as we got to see Tucker being baptized into Jesus Christ. And we know, Father, that it is nothing that this water did or nothing that Connor did or this church did. It is what you have continued to do. You weld us, you reunite us with your son's death, burial, and resurrection. We are so, so thankful for this covenant, Father, that we have. We benefit so much from this, Father. We thank you for your word and how it just multiple, multiple, multiple places helps us understand this whole concept and what it is that you called your people to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.